continuing here this, uh, this morning to think about the subject of evangelism. As I've done recently, I'm going to give a little vignette here following the 10 modern evangelism myths. And this one is that the myth that evangelism is unsuccessful if no one is converted. Evangelism is, is unsuccessful if no one is converted. So let me put this to you. Are we just spinning our wheels without uh, with, uh, kind of um, in futility if we share the gospel and no one is converted? What do you think? It's, uh, it's not wasting of our breath to do that. Greg? Uh, yeah. 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 Good. Good. You both hit on some really, uh, really important topics there. Any other comments? Well, we're, we're commanded to uh, preach the word. We're commanded to uh, yep. share. And uh, the results are God business. Yep. 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 Yeah. Very good. I'll just jump off from there a little bit and tie in these other comments. So, the uh, we begin with the point that. Our responsibility is to, to share the gospel. It's been given to us as both a privilege and a responsibility. And the Lord is, is pleased when we are participating in what he has asked us to do. And so part of our evangelism is in obedience. And part of it is out of gratitude. We're sharing these things because God has told us to and because of, of how much we appreciate what we have received from him. So that is a, part of a definition of evangelism that brings the good news to others but doesn't have in view what they do with it. That we leave in God's hands and that's part of our, our, our reformed um, conviction that it is, it's God who does the converting we're not the ones who are twisting people's arm in, into the kingdom of heaven. So, uh, so we can take great joy and great satisfaction, as Susan was saying. Uh, it's not a waste of our breath because we are testifying to the, the greatness and goodness of God. At the same time, there, what Greg was talking about, there, there are some, uh, some benefits or there are some aspects about the gospel that you may not have in view if you are only measuring it at the moment of your sharing it with that individual and whether or not they, uh, they respond to it. And uh, one of those is that we are convinced that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians is that one plants, one waters, and God grants the increase. So what you do may be just the beginning part of a person's journey to Christ. It may be that you have planted a seed. It may be that you have given water to something someone has done before. It may be that you will be used to 
to bring in the harvest. And uh, I know that from my own experience that, uh, that I can, can testify to that. I, I had a good friend in high school who came, came uh, we got together several years after college and he wanted to let me know that he'd become a Christian. And he said, now I understand what you are trying to tell me there by my lockers there in high school. And I don't actually remember that event, but he did. And later, God, God used that, and, uh, which uh, gives me courage and, and encouragement to continue sharing and then praying that if someone goes away, having not uh, responded, that maybe that, they would, uh, that God would bring somebody else into their lives that would take that next step and that God would bring that. And there is a benefit to us as well. There really is. And one reason why we, uh, we share the gospel is because it's good for our souls. It deepens our understanding. It deepens our trust. It, uh, it presses us down on our knees to pray that God would do what, what he does. And so it is, uh, it is not a failure when, if no one is converted. I like the way that uh, J.I. Packer describes this in, in his little book titled Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says, the way to tell whether in fact you are evangelizing is not to ask whether conversions are known to have resulted from your witness. It is to ask whether you are faithfully making known the gospel message. Whether you're faithfully making known the gospel message. Well, let's press on then in our subject of evangelism. And last week I introduced uh, from Sam Chan's book on evangelism the idea that, uh, that, that the, the Bible speaks about, uh, about salvation using a variety of different metaphors and, and uh, especially looking at the person and nature of God and how that influences or how that shapes the ways in which we might talk to individuals about who God is and what our responsibility is towards him. Now, another key component of the gospel message is the subject of sin, and you can see that on the board that I'm going to be treating the subject of sin today. And much like we did last week, I want to... I want to, to lead us along following uh, Chan's outline to, to recognize that the Bible has a broad vocabulary to describe what it is when, that we describe as sin. And I wonder if anybody knows the catechism answer to what is sin. So, uh, often a, a popular one for, for people to memorize. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So I want to unpack that just a little bit and give you uh, several metaphors that can be seen just in that answer that will help us to understand some of uh, the nature of sin. So in... Uh, in that, we had a want of conformity. And 
and transgression. Oops. I'm going to add another one here from Chan, iniquity. So want of conformity is the first metaphor that is given there. That's old-fashioned language. Let's describe, let's fill that in. What does it mean to have want of conformity to the law of God? Good. So a sin of omission. You're not being or doing what God commands. There's a, uh, a really a fun, uh, a fun uh, understanding of this that comes from the word itself. If you go back and look at the uh, original languages, the idea of, uh, of this omission or failing to measure up can be called missing the mark, and it uses the idea... Of, uh, of archery or of marksmanship. So have you ever shot a gun or a bow at a target? And did you hit the target every time? <laughs> Got some honest people here. No, I didn't hit the target every time. So you missed the mark. You were, you were demonstrating a want of conformity unto the laws of archery if you missed the target. Well, God says, this is my law. This is what you, what you are to do and summarized in the Ten Commandments. And when we don't measure up to that or when we miss the mark, it is sin. But it's this, uh, it's this second one that we think of most. Sin is a transgression of the law of God. So how would you put that in other words? What would be another word for transgression? Good. Willfully missing the mark. Hitting a different target. I would do it even simpler than that. Breaking the law of God. Uh, so uh, God has said, uh, this, is the, this is the way, walk, walk in it. And when we, when we do what God has forbidden, we are transgressing the law. We are breaking the law. So God has said, uh, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, covet. Uh, so when we do those things, we are breaking God's law. We are transgressing God's law. One Further metaphor that the Bible often uses is the term iniquity, and this I would uh, I would point your attention to the concept that is uh, all throughout the Old Testament the idea of being unclean. There's guilt or filthiness that comes from uh, breaking God's law or from not measuring up. Uh, Chan uses the term uh, broken or bent out of shape. And I'll give just a slight caution in using that term because it is fairly popular today to talk about how we are, we are broken without really thinking of it as, 
as a, uh, either transgression or, or falling short of the law of God. It's almost like an excuse. Well, uh, I couldn't help it. I'm broken. And what, uh, what the Bible has in mind when it talks about iniquity is, is the willful character of that, the, the twisting and the perversion of the good thing that God has made us to be. So iniquity has that idea of, of twisting or perversion, uh, getting out of shape. We've talked about some uh, examples of that, but we can give some biblical examples too. So if I were to say the prodigal son, uh, what, uh, uh, where would you classify the prodigal son as the, the sins that he committed? Good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's well said, Henry. And a good point to say here is that is that these are not hard and fast divisions, as if things fall neatly into these categories. There's a lot of a lot of bleeding over into these other categories as well. How about the Apostle Paul? Was he a sinner? He was. Uh-huh. And uh, where might you uh, lean here as to, as to Paul's sins? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, some great examples of uh, the way that he was transgressing God's law. But even then, as a, a well-trained, practicing Pharisee, he would say, I am, I am meticulously keeping the law of God. And yet he came to recognize that there was more to it than uh, not just... Uh, uh, not transgressing. In fact, in Romans chapter uh, chapter seven, he's confronted by the tenth commandment, and his his world is in a sense blown away because the the law says do not covet uh, that an internal. And he was would be transgressing that, but there would be also be the positive side where he's not measuring up to the perfection of God's law. So that idea of want of conformity would, would be a good example. Uh, I like the example of Isaiah as well. If you think about Isaiah chapter 6, he's confronted with the, uh, with the holiness of God. And do you remember what Isaiah said when, uh, when he saw the glory of God? Yeah, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm, I'm destroyed. I'm a man of unclean lips, of a people of unclean lips. There's that uncleanness or the perverseness of his character because of sin. So uh, that's some examples of different ways that, that sin affects the world around us. And... We can think of this in a, in a practical nature as well. Oh, by the way, I wanted to read Psalm 51, verses 1 
1 through 3 as an example of all three of these being expressed by David. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the, the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my, and my sin is always before me. So he uses three different terms there, the terms that would, uh, would filter out into these different metaphors. Uh, just uh, noting is before God is utter failure, uh, transgression, not measuring up, and the perverseness of his nature. So practical, one of the reasons that I, I wanted to talk about this and one of the reasons that uh, that is motivating us in this class is that much like our exercise last week, uh, I would suggest that these different metaphors are going to resonate with different people. And as you listen to individuals, you'll begin to understand where they are and where the, the guilt of their sin is weighing on them. That's what we believe that God's word says, is that the Lord has not left us without witness that the, the Spirit uh, does convict in the conscience of men. Even unbelievers are, uh, have a conscience, and some are more scarred over than others, and uh, some are, are more tender in that conscience. As you listen, as, as you engage with people, you'll find that you might uh, be talking more about their understanding that, uh, yes, indeed, they are perverse or the uncleanness of their conscience and of their character might weigh upon them. Um, and uh, Chan talks about an interesting just understanding of where our culture is today. We've moved from being uh, a modern society where there was a, a sense of right and wrong, and so transgression would, would be something that people would be aware of. But we've moved beyond that modern idea into postmodernism and and uh, beyond postmodernism, wherever we are now, post-postmodernism, where the the sense of absolutes is is completely foreign idea, and everyone does what's right in his own eyes, and so uh, in that kind of uh, of atmosphere, you might find that. Uh, speaking of, of iniquity or of, of not measuring up might be a place where a person's conscience would, uh, would be more tender or more aware of their sin. Well, I want to go on to talk about uh, theological components of sin, uh, but any other questions or comments about metaphors? Yeah, Jeff. Sensibility. It seems like you mentioned the idea of 
Yes. Right. Yes, yeah. That is a really interesting observation that just uh, all of it was good, but even that last point, uh, the realization that that there is sin is is usually not taken to heart individually, but you can recognize it when somebody does it to you. And when somebody does it to you, oh, that's, uh, that's sin. Um, but try to bring that to an individual's uh, recognition is is a little more difficult. And I think these other aspects are going to address some of that, but uh, I would say that that uh, that part of evangelism is to is to bring that individual into a face to face confrontation with Jesus, and that. Uh, uh, they can deny the the reality of Jesus, the claims of Jesus, the absolute uh, laws of God, uh, all they want. But uh, our job is to confront them with what the truth is, and and uh, uh, and and talking to them in some language that that might connect. I think is part of that. If it all brings us back to uh, the holiness of God that the only way of salvation is, is through repentance and that, that you are genuinely not just broken but, uh, but a sinner. Uh, Vicki. That is a challenge, uh, especially in a uh, more and more of a post-Christian society. When uh, when I I started ministry here in Stillwater in the early '90s, uh, I, this is Bible Belt, Oklahoma. Um, everybody knows who Jesus is. Uh, everybody knows that to to uh, to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the case anymore. I'm finding more and more people who have never 
uh, read the Bible, never been to church, uh, know a little bit about Jesus and, and have some concept of uh, what we might say the gospel is, but there's a lot, a lot less knowledge and a lot of uh, dismissing of the Bible. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Mark, you want to say something? Yes, yeah. Just a little whoopsie. Yeah. But without the full weight of sin. Yeah. There's definitely a minimizing of of sin and its consequences. It's not just minimizing it, it's even phrasing it. And we have five months. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well said. Yeah, so um, yeah, post-Christian is going to celebrate and demand that you celebrate the iniquity that, that they are, are participating in. And uh, just a, an acting out of what Romans 1 says, that, that people suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And they, they do not want to hear of the fact that there is a God and that they are... Uh, that they have broken God's law. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, in a post-Christian culture, I, I agree that, that that happens more and more. Uh, to answer uh, those last several comments, I would just observe that the, the, the pattern that, that I see in the New Testament is is doing what I've I've described is still confronting people with Jesus and, and the truth of the gospel, even though they may never have heard it before, even though they they might not accept it, uh, even though they might uh, brazenly celebrate. Uh, great is the God of Diana. Uh, the, uh, great is uh, uh, great is Diana. Excuse me. Um, so just think of uh, of Paul on his missionary journeys. Going into places where uh, where there there may have been some Jews, and so that the word of God would have had some light in those areas, but these are patently pagan cultures. Uh, I think we'll soon be saying that of our own culture, but uh, those New Testament cultures are patently pagan, uh, never having heard the word of God. And so, what does what does Paul do? Well, he says. Um, I'm here to tell you about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was crucified on the cross and rose again from the dead. Uh, and, and almost without apology, he says, this is in fulfillment of, of the word of God. Yeah, Vicki. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so on Mars Hill, uh, Paul is speaking to uh, Greek philosophers, and so he, he engages with them right there, but he does so to lead them to, to the point of saying, I, I want you to know that, that uh, what your philosophers are talking about and your altar to the unknown God, I want to declare that to you openly, that, uh, that there is one God and he has one son, Jesus, and he died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And, and it goes, goes on from there. To the Jews, he would open 
the Old Testament scriptures what they accepted and lead out from there and say, you see this? See what Isaiah is talking about here? Well, that's Jesus. <laughs> so I'm um, thinking back to last week and and the kind of the entry points for the gospel, but uh, but leading to this confrontation with with Jesus. I think I may have shared this before, but. Uh, Gary DeMar has a book called, uh, I think it's called Surviving College Successfully. Uh, And uh, he talks about the way in which we uh, will uh, sometimes share the gospel and do so in a, uh, I'll just back up. He he gives this, uh, this story. Imagine you're walking across campus and someone jumps out and mugs you, and but little did the, know, the, the the mugger know, but you're you're carrying a gun, and so you, in defense of yourself, you pull out out a gun, and tell the mugger to to shove off. The mugger says, "Well, I don't believe in your gun," and. So you look at your gun and you go, oh man, and you throw it away. <laughs> well, no, Damar says, you, you shoot him. <laughs> so his point is that as we are sharing the gospel, sometimes we have the word of God. We have the truth of the gospel. We are, are wanting for this confrontation with Jesus Christ to take place. And so... We meet up with someone who has all of these objections, and they say, well, I don't believe in your Bible. And so we look at it and we go, man, and we throw it away. And what his encouragement is, is to say, uh, no, shoot him again. <laughs> uh, bring to bear what the Bible says uh, about their objections. And again, here's where listening to them finding out where they hurt, where they are broken, and help them to go deeper into that concept. Why do you think you're broken? What is the, what is the manifestation of that brokenness? What's the consequences of that brokenness? And you know what? There's a solution to that, and the Bible speaks of it. It's through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And, and can I show you that? Uh, so rather than just tossing away the truths of Scripture because they are not accepted or unknown, um, see how you can bring to bear and, and uh, lovingly, boldly, pointedly sometimes bring to bear uh, the word of God that will uh, highlight their their sinfulness. And uh, with that, let me go on uh, to talk about these other four uh, divisions here. I'll, I'll go a little quicker so I can, can cover this. So theological components. So uh, we'll talk about internal, horizontal, and vertical. So 
internal, horizontal, and vertical. And so internal has the idea that we, that we sin within ourselves. Um, this is Romans 7. That's, uh, Paul is, Paul's worldview is destroyed when he comes to a good, uh, the right understanding of the Tenth Commandment. Uh, how can I say that I've kept all of the law of God when the law against covetousness pierces my heart? And I, I may not act on that externally, but, uh, but I've sinned internally. And uh, so we sin within ourselves. Horizontal, we sin against others. So think of David's internal sin to begin with. He, uh, he was not doing what a king ought to do. He had not gone to war as his responsibility was. And in his idleness, he then saw Bathsheba and sinned internally by coveting her, lusting after her, uh, committing those internal sins. And then he acts on it. What are his sins against others then? What did David do? Yeah. So... Adultery he acted on that internal sin by forcing Bathsheba to come to him and he, she, he slept with, with her. And then murder, he, he plotted the, the, uh, the death of, of her husband and uh, uh, tried to cover up his, his sin. Uh, vertical, I hope you probably can guess what this is, uh, sin against, against God. So I read the first three verses of Psalm 51 earlier. Let me read the fourth verse now. David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David grasps the fact that that all sin, internal or horizontal, has fundamentally a, a vertical component to it. And that vertical component is, is the, the most important one because of God's holiness, because of who God is. And here again, on the practical side of things, uh, I would say that it's very tempting to uh, to downplay the the vertical nature of our sin when we talk to others, and uh, only talk about things internally being broken. Has this idea of of there being either something excusable or or only in myself, and uh, then people will recognize. Oh, yeah, so somebody actually did sin against me and I can identify that. But there's another step that is important in this and that is to, uh, to, uh, to say, well, not only are these things um, internal or horizontal, but, but you've also uh, sinned against a holy God and that holiness of God and his demand for our perfect righteousness is something that, uh, 
that is often denied and will be explained away, but, uh, but it is a place for us to, to press. And uh, this has been um, years ago, uh, I remember going door to door with Dave and his pressing the point about, um, so uh, if you put it on a percentage scale, how righteous do you need to be? Uh, so we, we could talk about uh, uh, someone who is, uh, is really bad. So we'll date ourselves here. Hitler, I don't know who we might put in that category today, but uh, someone who is really bad and somebody who's really good, but, but nobody is all the way good. So how good do you have to be to go to heaven? Put a percentage on it. And uh, people will will put a variety of things on that. Uh, uh, never 100% we found. And then to show them from Scripture that or that requirement, or ask them before them, where would you put yourself? Well, I'm not Hitler. I've never killed anybody. I'm not Mother Teresa. Uh, I'm not uh, somebody who's pristine there. So oh, a percentage. And again, they would give something not not too bad. Um but then to show the the requirement of a holy God is is 100% righteousness. And to at least leave them with that, uh, with that understanding of the vertical component of sin. To not do so is to really, to I think, to damage the gospel, damage the, uh, the truth of who God is and, uh, and it's the consequences of sin. Let me go on to some manifestations, and here he, he flips it and talks. Uh, Chan flips this and talks about vertical, horizontal, and internal. To be quick, I'll just go like this. <laughs> vertical, horizontal, and uh, and internal. So this is talking about the observable, observable effects, and. Uh, the vertical being God's judgment against sin, which is uh, eternal death. Horizontal, uh, there's manifestations of that, that there's a, uh, there is the observation of, uh, of, of hatred, of, uh, of oppression, of social justice, uh, you name it. And there would be actually quite a bit of, of conversation right here in this horizontal side of things, which, uh, which may today be an entry point to, to talk about that uh, you know, you're right about uh, these aspects that are, are wrong in our society. It's wrong for the poor to be oppressed. It's, it's wrong for there to be uh, racial prejudice we are concerned about those things, but the solution that you're suggesting uh, is it falls far short of how bad it really is. Because not only are we offending our, uh, our brothers and sisters around us, our fellow man, but we are also offending a holy God. And you can see the transition from from something observable here into something deeper to help them to see it's worse than you think. 
and uh, to give that opportunity then to, uh, to talk more about sin from a biblical concept. Uh, internal manifestations, guilt, psych- psychological di- uh, disturbances, uh, and then uh, judgment in, these case, in this case, um, uh, using Chan's categories again, privatization of goods, separation and punishment. Um, I'm running out of time. I'll have to write fast. Separation. Privatization means that uh, the, the, the good that could be had is not had. Think of, of those in Jesus' parables that are cast out of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22. Uh, separation that's uh, being cast into outer darkness and punishment. There's fire and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I would just summarize all three of these as one word. Starts with the H. Uh, so uh, this is a, a concept that is is. Really chafed against uh, the idea that there would uh, would be hell and that uh, that I might be in it, um, and a place where I think we need to be uh, unapologetic in in uh, applying this. We we may soften our words, thinking they might be more palatable, but it's a uh, it is important for us to, to talk about hell. And one objection to the doctrine of hell that uh, even has theological backgrounds, uh, there have been even those in, uh, in, in Christendom, uh, I say that broadly, the universalist type of mentality says that, uh, that the concept of hell is disproportionate you mean to tell me that I, uh, I took a piece of candy from the grocery store and I'm deserving of hell for that? That's kind of the way it's characterized. But what that, uh, what that misses is the holiness of God and uh, it uh, suggests a low view of God that he would not punish transgression of his law, do not steal. Uh, so we are violating uh, the holiness of God. Uh, but on a practical side, and, and, and here I'll, I'll, I'll point out something that Chan brought up that I hadn't thought of before, is that not only do we have a low view of, uh, of God, but we have a low view of mankind around us as well. You are sinning against those who bear the image of God. Your your theft is against an image bearer. Your adultery is against an image bearer. You you show the the value of the people around you by 
by acknowledging that punishment is deserved when wrong is done. And you're upholding the, uh, the righteousness and holiness of God in, uh, in, in, this, um, in holding to a, a doctrine of hell. Well, I'll leave the, the concepts and just mention them. He describes uh, Western culture as having a guilt base, the Near East an uncleanness base, and the Eastern cultures as a shame-based society, honor-based society. They're good things to think about. Uh, got a couple minutes over, but I'll pause and say I went fairly quickly through the end here, but any other questions or comments that you'd like to make? Henry. Yes. Yeah. Well said. They are without excuse, and God sends us out with that message for the conversion of some, for the hardening of others. Uh, so that they would be without excuse. Uh, Our prayer is is for conversions, uh, definitely, um, but uh, we we do leave that in God's hands. Okay, well, I'll close this in prayer. Lord God, we uh, are, are humbled by this subject today, humbled because... We uh, can acknowledge our our own sin in your presence. And Lord, we we do so with humility and with recognition, knowing that your word, your spirit, your conscience, our conscience demonstrates that, uh, that you are holy and we are not. And that gives us great thanksgiving that that you have forgiven us as sinners that you've washed away our guilt, you have cleansed us from, a, uh, from that conscience, you set us on a new path, and we pray that we would pursue that with, uh, with gratitude and eagerness. And Lord, I, I, I continue to pray that you would help us to, uh, to engage with people around us. Pray that even this week that we would have our ears open to hear people talk about what is wrong with the world and to enter into that congregation, uh, conversation and enter into it with a, with a view of taking a conversation to a, another level, a level of, of uh, responsibility to a holy God and the confrontation with the Savior Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.